This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you for being here today. Today's episode of the podcast is sponsored by Koala Clip. If you are looking for a way to take your phone with you on the go, on the run, on the bike, wherever it is you're going, look no further than Koala Clip. I have been using the Koala Clip for several years now, and I have never found a better solution for being able to carry my phone, not just my phone. I also put today, I went and ran my Under Armour All Out Mile, ran 627. That's what I've got in me right now. And... I put my key in there too because I went and parked somewhere to try to find flat ground here in Raleigh. It's hard to come by. And the Koala Clip saved me. It always saves me. They have a new color right now that is out for a limited time. It is a lush green. Very cool. You all can save when you go to koalaclip.com. Use the code ANOTHER and that will get you 10% off. It's a great gift idea too. So I'm just saying the holidays are coming up. All right. Today's episode was so fun to record. This is episode 341 and my guest is Julie Culley. Julie is currently the sports marketing manager for Brooks Running. Before that position though, she was the director of track and field and cross country at Georgetown University. And before that, she was a 2012 Olympian. So Julie's had a really long career in the sport of running, doing all sorts of different things. Her husband and her also own five specialty run stores called Pacers. So to say she's had an inside look at the sport on so many different levels and is an understatement. She also just had her third son. So she's the mom of three and we get into all sorts of running talk as a professional, being a head coach and director, and also what she's doing now at Brooks, as well as how she's doing after having her third baby. If you enjoy this podcast with Julie, please leave us a rating and review so that potential new listeners can find us. I do want to let you all know I took a three-month break from Patreon because I just needed to lift something from my load and that's what I decided to do but we're back my husband Glenn and I just recorded a brand new episode over there just talking about our move and updates on life right now so you can find that at patreon.com slash Lindsay Hine all right enjoy my conversation with Julie today on the podcast we have Julie Coley on the show welcome to the show Julie Hi, thank you. Great to be here. So excited to meet you and talk with you. I love the artwork behind you. Thank you. It's um, it's more extensive on the other wall, um, but we're working on it. We're building it, wrapping around. Is this your home office? It is, yeah. It. And so my boys make sure that it's very well decorated. So uh, they've got some new artwork. I haven't put it up yet, but in a few days I will (laughs) so you just had your third baby right you're like very freshly postpartum yes uh eight weeks ago yesterday so I have my third boy um it's becoming old hat 
I think. Uh, each one is is a brand new experience, but um, the rhythm of these first few weeks is is normal to me. I think uh, so. It's been good. We're we're you know getting in a little bit more of a schedule, um, but he's he's doing great so far. And how are you? It's it's postpartum <laughs> is it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, emotionally, I've been good. Um, it's really my first ever um, true maternity leave. So my two previous babies I had during a really chaotic time when I was at Georgetown. Um, all three of my boys were born in August. So if you can imagine August, what August brings as a college coach is um, a lot of um you know, the planning and getting ready for the team to come back and then the team's arrival. Um, so each of my first two boys, I was back out at practices within two weeks. Um, so it's crazy to think about now. Um, so this really feels like such a blessing. I feel like I'm getting to know my baby in these early stages much more intimately um, than I was able to in the first two, first two pregnancies and first two newborns. So this experience has been great. Um, you know, the days are hard. It's it's challenging being sleep deprived um, and still trying to function at your best for your other two. Um, but we're getting by. So we've got some good help. We have an au pair at home. So that makes a really big difference. Um, but it's it feels different this time because I know, at least I think I know, this is my last. Um, <laughs> so I'm really trying to, to savor these moments. And I'm not sugarcoating it. I there are definitely days that are really challenging and nights that are really challenging. Um, but he's smiling up a storm right now. And so that just brings like this whole new light and energy to, to childcare. So um, once they go from being a blob uh -huh. to a little bit more interactive, um, it just is a, it's a whole new experience. It's like when you're in pregnancy, you know, the first uh, almost into your second trimester is, um, you don't have too much of a connection with the baby yet because you haven't felt the baby. And it's like once the baby starts to really interact with you and your body, like it just becomes this different level. Um, and we're kind of emerging from that space right now, um, getting almost uh, to the end of the fourth trimester. Yes, so. yes. That's Clo so close true. enough. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like with your later babies, like for me, particularly with my third and fourth, it's like. I just knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel with right. the first it felt every all the fog all of the postpartum anxiety felt like I don't know when this will end because I've never done this before right 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 absolutely and I think once you're in a rhythm with it like I I started planning things like little milestones along the way not for the baby, but for myself, like, okay, here's a little mini project I can do. Here's an event that I'm going to prepare for, you know, an event being like hosting a birthday party for my other two boys. But I think that when you have these little marks, it kind of gives you a space to plan for and not a ton of time to kind of, you know, fall into that postpartum depression. And it's a really fine line. Um, I've been blessed to not have extreme depression. Um, but I think having these little milestones and little things to work on has been really helpful. Even we planned a family vacation five weeks into, you know, past his past his due date, because I was like, I feel like five weeks is just around the time where it's like, okay, the newness is worn off. 
people aren't bringing you meals anymore. Um, and I really needed something to just like get myself out of the house for a few days. Um, so I think that, you know, once you've done it a few times being a mom and having, having kids, you get in a rhythm and you start to know like what you need, um, in order to get through those first few months. That I love that thought of that. And I don't even know I ever thought of it that way, but I very specifically remember with our second having like a one month birthday party for him, not with <laughs> not with anybody there, but just like yeah. I made cupcakes and it was like me and my husband and our, and our, you know, our two kids. But I think that that's probably why I did that because it gave me something to be excited about and something right. to look forward to. And, you know, we just moved from Indiana to North Carolina Oh my gosh. Yeah. In July. And, you know, I've lived in Indiana my whole life. And I think I'm doing that now in life, you know, outside of having babies. I'm like planning, okay, well, in two weeks we get to do this. Well, there's just like giving yourself something to look forward to kind of eases the burden of, of whatever feels heavy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that can feel really heavy when you're doing something brand new. You're moving to a new place. Like, you are meeting new people, like you can start to sink into that mindset of like, wow, I really miss home, or I really miss where, you know, I would see family or I would see friends and, and those moments. And it's, it's so much better for the mind and the psyche to have something to continue to look forward to even just small little moments. Um, So that's been, that's been really helpful for me, at least in the start of this new, uh, this new chapter for our family. All right. So there's your takeaway, everybody. <laughs> our, work, our work is done here. Go plan something That's fun. That's it. First 10 minutes. We got it. Um, well, let's introduce you to the guests, though. Julie's a 2012 Olympian in the 5,000 meters. She coached at Georgetown. Josette Norris was on the podcast raving about Julie <laughs> um, back before the Olympic trials. And now you're working as a sports marketing director at Brooks. So there's yeah. a really brief intro. <laughs> but Julie, maybe you can share with the guests when you fell in love with running. Yeah, similar to I think probably many people's journeys was um, I was introduced to running through soccer. Um, So soccer was my first love, my first passion. Um, My coach never had to take me off the field because I just was I never got tired. Um, So actually, my club coach in middle school told me, you know, when you get to high school, you should probably try track. Um, See if you like it in New Jersey, where I grew up, soccer was in the fall and track was in the spring. So I could do both. Um, and about halfway through high school, you know, I had played varsity my first two years, but the love was just diminishing and, um, the excitement of trying something new. And we had a great team at my high school. My high school is North Hunterdon, um, at a new Western New Jersey. I'm actually the second Olympian of the 5,000 meters, um, to come from my high school. Anne-Marie Lauk is from my high school. Okay. So she made the team in both the 5k and the marathon for the U.S., um, in the nineties. So it was a running tradition. We had great running tradition there. Um, so it was a really neat program to kind of gravitate towards and a lot of really positive energy. So I fell in love with it because the coach was so phenomenal. He was a Shakespeare teacher at our school. He was named uh, teacher of the year for the entire state of New Jersey because of wow. his enthusiasm and animation. Um, so he brought that to cross country and a track, which can otherwise be pretty boring when you first get into it and you come from team sports where yeah. you're chasing a ball, you have, you know, this different kind of energy. Um, so he really 
introduced me to the sport and I fell in love with it from there. Do you think he had anything to do with you wanting to be a coach later on? He did as well as my college coach. So my college coach was Roberta Anthes. Um, She's still a mentor of mine. Um, She founded the women's program at Villanova. She was the first ever female. So literally was kicked off the team, climbing fences. Jumbo Elliott kicked her off the track many times until they gave up and let her kind of hang on with the boys. Um, so she was the coach at Rutgers and that's who recruited me. So she was there, um, during my five years, um, and just a phenomenal woman, a phenomenal human being. And so I had these great coaches around me growing up that had real passion and enthusiasm, knowledge, and then great intuition. Um, so that was something I really looked for in coaching, um, and hopefully was able to bring to my own coaching. It's just wild to think of someone who is a direct mentor in your life literally had to do those things. Right. (laughs) How is that this lifetime? I know. It feels like there's no way that I should be crossing paths with her considering how much access and opportunity that I've had. Um, But really, it is a testament to how quickly and how far we've come in a short period. Yeah, it's wild. Okay, so if you're from New Jersey, are you a Bruce Springsteen fan? Of course. You cannot. <laughs> and I went to Rutgers, like State University of New Jersey. So like Bon Jovi and uh, Bruce Springsteen were the Bible. Um, so the, the Sopranos came out while I was in college, like all of the New Jersey, like love and passion and uh, loyalty are a big part of my youth. Oh, my goodness. Well, I always say I'm from Indiana. So like I ha- love John Mellencamp. As much as you New Jersey people love (laughs) Bruce Springsteen. Like, I love him so much. Um, So let's give a shout out to all of our New Jersey people. Give us your top three favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. Me right now? Yeah, on the spot. Oh, man. Uh, Every Jersey girl loves um, the Jersey girl song. Thunder Road. And then, yeah, I'm going to have to get back to you on my third. Okay, okay. I know. It's a big commitment. Yeah, for sure. It's a big commitment. I think one other New Jersey person I've had on the show, Christine um, from the New York Roadrunners, I, I gave through that same question into her. And my friend Ashley Fizzerati, who is a regular listener, she will love this question as well because she's a big New Jersey person. Love it. Um, okay, well, let's talk about your career as a professional runner before we dive into the coaching. You ran with a group and then you also ran individually and I saw somewhere you were quoted saying that when you were running with the group it greatly um, excelled your progress and helped you grow as a runner so can you talk about that experience a little bit sure my first professional coach or I would say semi-professional because he really kind of brought me up into this space uh was Matt Centro at senior uh, junior was just a uh, little one in high school. <laughs> no, like maybe even middle school when I started working with the group. Um, so uh, coach was at American University at the time. Um, he had a small post-collegiate group back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. Well, I should really say late, mid to late 90s is when um, the Reebok Enclave was in Washington, D.C., which Frank Gagliano and Matt Centrowitz coached. So there kind of was always this, uh, once that broke up, there was always like some fast runners around Washington, D.C. And Gags had moved out to California, out to Oregon, and actually was, you know, eventually coming back to New Jersey. But when I was in Washington, D.C., 
Um, Matt Sensowitz had a small post-collegiate group at, at and out of American University. Um, so there were a few of us, uh, mostly guys, actually all guys at that point. Um, so we would meet for practices alongside the American University team. I was mostly working out with men. Um, Lindsay Gallo from New Jersey came down and visited um, with us and eventually came and moved to D.C. Uh, and worked out with that group as well. But we didn't always cross paths. I was more 5K, 10K longer distances, and she was a true 1,500-meter runner. Um, so a lot of my time was spent, um, you know, running alongside men. And there's just – you can get great workouts, but that same type of energy – um, the competitiveness, the camaraderie, like all the good things that can happen with running within your own gender, um, or at least uh, competing for the gender, is uh, was really different, right? So I got, I made huge headway and uh, made three world championship teams under Centrowitz. Um, but when when we kind of uh, decided to part ways, and I moved to New Jersey, Gags was starting a small group there. He had Aaron Donahue. Um, who was still running for Nike at the time, and he had um, two guys, and a few of us kind of gravitated towards Gags. This was in 2010, um, and he really went from you know two or three men and two or three women to like I think by the time I left, there was like 30 people in the group because <laughs> Gags just can't say no. Uh. Um, but there was an awesome group of women to train with at that time. Uh, Frances Coons moved to my hometown. Um, so we became really close training partners. She ran for Villanova and was running for New Balance at the time. Um, Ashley Higginson mm. moved to my town. Kate Grace moved to my town. Nicole Blood. Um, we had a really, really nice group that was training um, kind of for that distance really um mid distance on up kate was still figuring out what she was doing at the time kate was a, a trip um but we had this group that started and so we were training every day we were living together um we were doing easy runs together we were doing our hard sessions together um so that's when things really took off for me um i think being able to show up to practice and have people who are better than you at certain events and then I was stronger in other event areas and we could really, you know, capitalize on each other's strengths. Um, I learned how to try to run fast um, because I was so stuck in some of these longer distances like um, and pacing for the 5K that training with a bunch of fast 1500 meter women, Marina Munkin, you know, made the Olympic team that year, um, the 1500. And so having that combination really was such a perfect situation for me and everybody I convinced everyone to move to my hometown so that was helpful <laughs> so you guys could all go to Bruce Springsteen concerts together yeah totally the PNC Bank Arena down down at the shore um, oh, love it. was uh, the big outdoor venue so a lot of fun okay so I've interviewed several people who have in some capacity worked with Frank Gagliano yeah and I've just heard just some of the most amazing things about the kind of person he is and the kind of coach that he is. So I would just love to hear from you what you learned from him. You know, he may not love that I say this, um, but when I first started in the group, um, it was really middle distance based and I was kind of the distance runner. Delilah DiCrescenzo was in the group. Um, but she was a bit speedier than I was. And so 
I came to him injured and it took me a few months to kind of get myself going again. Um, Gags still makes fun of me for this, but the first time he ever saw me run strides, he walked up to me and he said, there is no way you ever ran 1521. Because <laughs> I, I just was so all over the place. And uh, we got a good laugh out of it. I was like, I swear. He's like, I'm going to have to look that up. <laughs> um, so fast forward to six months later, I, you know, did his workouts to a T. You know, every we were running hard, you know, medium hard to hard three days a week, which was a change for me. Um, and I did every single thing that he asked me to do. And that USA's, which I believe was 2011, I finished fifth in the 5k and ironically ran 1521. Um, so I proved to him very specifically that I was capable of running 1521. Um, but I went overseas that summer and I, um, really struggled. I teetered out really quickly and, I came home and reflected and had a couple conversations with them. And, and I was older in the group at that point. I was 29. And a lot of the folks who were coming in were pretty young. And I sat down with them and I said, you know, there's a few things that I think I need and um, to be successful that I think, you know, alongside what I'm, I'm benefiting from in the group. And this is a very delicate conversation to have with a coach, um, especially we were only about a year into our relationship. And I told him what I thought worked well for me before and that I that I thought would work well for me heading into 2012. Um, and there were a couple things there. One was training in the winter away from the group. Um, I had met with Molly Huddle, Amy Hastings, Kim Smith, and a bunch of other women through the winter months in January and February in Phoenix, um, I think, the in 2009. And that worked really well for me um and so i asked him to be able to do that um separate from the group and and that was a hard thing for him to kind of grasp right being separate from the group um i asked him to kind of pull back on some of the intensity of the workouts and let me kind of structure it a little bit differently so we had a really positive conversation. It was hard for him because he was used to a certain way of coaching, but I was also used to a certain way of training. And we kind of came together and said, we can, we can do this together. We can take his workouts and we can just pull back on the intensity, increase the volume, um, make a few changes. And I think this, you know, could be really successful. And that was the recipe for us. Like that was the summer of 2011. Mm. And 2012 was kind of, it was the best year of my career. Um, so that to me was such a monumental moment where he had, he was humble enough and vulnerable enough to allow me to have a say in my training. And I think now being on that side of the coin or having been on that side of the coin as a coach is really hard to do. Like when an athlete says, this isn't working for me. Now I just said it a lot nicer than that. Yeah. Um, but it was it was an, an amazing conversation. I'll never forget where we were. I'll never forget his initial reaction, which he was not happy about, but we talked it through and we came up with a, a plan that worked. And um, I give him all the credit in the world for that because that's the type of person he is. Like he wants to see you be successful and he's a veteran enough in his own you know life and career that allowing the athlete to have a say, or at least an experienced athlete at that point to have a say 
um, he was capable of doing. Um, it was funny, though, because I kind of had this plan over here and the rest of the team was training like this over here. And people would be like, there are a few people who are like, you know what, I, I kind of like what Julie's doing. He'd be like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like she's, she, you know, she's over here. Don't worry about her. <laughs> um, so it was, but that's to me, like that made such a difference um, for us. And I just think that's a small little like capture of who he is as a person. You know, I wonder how different that would have been if you would have been like 22, 23. I just feel like at 29, you probably knew a lot more about the kind of runner you were, right? Yeah. And I knew what was what was going to get me hurt. Yeah. Um, I knew my body really well. I knew that I couldn't handle a lot of intensity. I knew that I didn't recover as quickly as a 22-year-old, right? So when you're 22, you can run three intense workouts a week and recover properly. Totally. When you're 29, like you feel things a little bit differently, especially if you've been doing it for a long period of time. Um, so that was huge for me. I was like, I need more recovery days. Like I can work really hard on hard days, but I, I was like, I want one full day off a week, like completely off. Like we can get all the mileage we need in six days. I need that emotional rest day. And that was not something that was, you know, part of the routine at that point. Uh, and gags would give you a day off whenever you needed it, but I put it in there concrete. Um, there were just things I had learned and I, I'll never forget. My dad said to me, it was, I think it was that same summer. It was before I had that conversation with, with, with coach gags. He said, why are you waiting for someone to tell you what to do? He's like, you have been doing this long enough. You know, what works for you. You know, what doesn't work for you. No one knows your body better than you. And I was like, oh, wait, I own this experience, you know, and that doesn't mean I don't listen to my coach, but I can own this experience. I can own this moment and say, this is what I know works. This is what I know I need to do better. This is what I know is going to make me better. And, um, you know, really kind of own what I thought was going to be the recipes for success for me. What ended up happening because of that is like, then I became so confident in my plan right? Like it became this shared plan between gags and I, but it was for me, you know, and I didn't think about what Abby Diagostino was running in college at the time, or, you know, some of these crazy workouts that other people were doing, what Molly was doing, what Amy was doing, what Shalane was doing, what Kara was doing. I wasn't concerned with any of that anymore. Cause I was like, this is what works for me. Um, and so that gave me an incredible amount of confidence as well. Wow, go dad. Yeah, I know. That's like, good oh, dad thanks, advice. Dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, crazy when you mention those names. I'm just thinking through who's still competing, you know? Right. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, things have shifted. We've seen Amy retire this past year. You know, Shalane, I don't know if Shalane's retired because she's running crazy fast times across the globe right now. But um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're all around the same mm -hmm. age so it's interesting I would have loved my career to be longer but my body just physically couldn't handle it, That's what it um was. yeah and my so then it was like well if I can't go for the team in 2016 I'm just gonna have a baby in 2016 nice. so that's what I did literally in August so I was like while the Olympics are going on I want to be focusing on having a baby as opposed to being sad to not be out there need something big and monumental <laughs> yeah Hey everybody, a quick break to let you know that Gooder has the best sunglasses on the market. 
They are functional, fashionable, and the price is right. They're affordable. They have the cutest and most colorful and fun designs. I personally love the Amelia Earhart Ghosted Me shades. Those are aviators. I wear them all the time. Actually, what you'll see me in most right now is the Breakfast Run to Tiffany's shades. I love those. They're such a good transition from on the run to running errands. But hey, listen, what I think you should do is go find a really fun, loud color and wear that at your next race because I think races are more fun when we add a little flavor to them. You all can save when you go to gooder.com slash another. Use the code another15, that's another15, and that'll get you 15% off your order. Let me know what fun color you decide on for your fall racing season. Okay, back to the show. Um, tell us your favorite thing, your favorite memory from the Olympics. You should, so Julie won the trials and then you mm -hmm. were 14th in the final, right? Yeah. At the Olympics. Yeah. So what's from that experience? I mean, you have the title now, you're Olympian. You've had that for a long time now. Um, uh, but what's, you know, one of the best memories from that experience? Uh, wow. The Olympics excel itself, um, I think the one thing I always go back to and, you know, I have so much gratitude for what it took to get me there, like the village of support, right? You think about the moment at the trials where you make the team and you see who's on the team with you and the podium and celebrating afterwards and celebrating in your hometown. There's just so many levels of care and excitement and joy that other people bring to that moment. Um, I was working with a sports psychologist at the time, and I remember he told me that when I walked into the stadium for the prelim to look up and smile, mm. because the nerves and the gravity of that moment is just so, like, it's overwhelming, right? It can be extremely overwhelming. You're staging differently than you've ever staged, like... Your warm-up happened 25 minutes ago, and you've just been, like, walking and sitting and waiting, right? And so all you do in that moment is just panic, right? You either panic or you have the mental skills to really, um, you know, calm your mind and really prepare yourself for battle. Um, and I remember he said, just when you walk out into the stadium, like, you come out from underneath when you look into the stadium, when you walk out, just look up and smile. Mm, and that. it was such a cool moment because in 2009, I made the world championships. It was in Berlin. And the prelim, I had this expectation that like the stadium was going to be full of all this high energy. And I walked out and there was like three people in the stands at the world championships because it was the prelim it was in the morning you know everything was happening in the evenings and i remember that like level of disappointment like oh man this is the world championships there's no one here you could hear a pin drop like what the heck and so i had kind of that expectation going into the olympics that i was going to walk into a half full or quarter full stadium and it's like 10 o'clock in the morning and i walk out and this place is packed to the brim. So it was not that hard to smile in that moment. 
because it just was such a shift from what I had remembered in my last, you know, world championship or now this is the Olympics. But I looked up and I smiled and it was like everything melted away. And I heard my parents cheer. I heard my friends who flew, you know, from New Jersey to come watch me. I heard them cheer. Like I could hear it because I had this heightened sense of awareness because I wasn't so focused on, oh God, oh God, here it comes, here it comes. I was like, breathe in this moment. And what ended up happening was I got on the starting line and I felt so incredibly relaxed that I was able to run a personal best and feel like the most ease I had ever felt running that fast before. Um, so I'll never forget that because it was just this one teeny tiny small thing and it brought back all this memory. It kind of opened my senses up to take in the experience. But a lot of times when we're in these heightened state of emotion, like we don't, we don't like capture it because we're so like, we've got this nervous energy and Mm -hmm. our brain tries to protect itself. So we don't always remember these moments. That moment really stands out to me. Wow. Um, it was a way for me to like take it all in. Like you did this and you did this with so many people alongside of you. It was just this very like overwhelming moment. That is so beautiful. I'm I'm sure that you took those sentiments with you to coaching. Like when you would work with athletes and they would be super nervous for races, right? Yeah, I tried. Yeah, I tried. It was in some ways it was a battle for me in coaching, at least initially to, um, to not always bring my experience Mm, to the table because I wanted so much for them to grow in their own experience and not feel like I had these expectations for them that were unrealistic. Right. Or that my experience was to be the experience or that I went through this hard time. And so they couldn't go through this hard time. Like you have this very like motherly instinct when it comes to coaching. It's like, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I did. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, I took a lot of that experience. I took a lot of it coach uh, athlete interaction um, that I had had over the years into my experience um, in coaching for sure. So why did you decide to coach? Went to Georgetown. You were the director of cross country and track and field, which is not a position many women hold. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the love for the sport was a big part of it. The love for mentoring young women was a big part of it. Um, You know, I, I started to come around the program in the last few years of my professional running. Um, Pat Henner was the coach, was the director at the time. Mike Smith was the women's coach. And um, I built a relationship with them. And, you know, they would be like, just come around the women, go for a run with them. Um, It was kind of one of those, like, right place, right time, where I was volunteering, then a position opened up as an assistant coach. Um, There was a a year or so where things were not great for the program. Mm -hmm. Um, Got complicated Um, our director, Pat ended up leaving. Mike took over the program. Mike left a year later to NAU. So there was a, a lot of movement that happened at that time. Um, so I went from volunteer to assistant to director within a matter of two years. So it was, it was, I would say my one regret was not ever having the experience of just being a head coach there. Um, and really focusing on that um, that like exercising that muscle for myself. Um, 
I went, I kind of went really quickly up to director's level. And when you're director, I mean, you're in charge of every aspect of the program. And I had big visions for the expansion of the program, you know, what we were going to be doing with our coaches, um, some renovations and stuff. And so I was on like, I was uh, like hyperdrive almost trying to get the program, you know, in a really positive place. Um, We expanded the roster. There's all kinds of things that we did during that time period, but um, I always look back and I say to myself, man, I, I wish I had just time to focus on the women's team mm-hmm. um, and getting that program going. And they are in such a good place right now. And, you know, the coach that took over when I left was the assistant that I brought in. Um, and he's done a great job. And I think we really built the foundation for the program to be, you know, back to where it is now, which I think they're a top 15, you know, ranked cross country program right now. Um, one Big East last year. So it's in a really good spot. But I think that was my one regret was not being able to kind of give my full focus and attention to that one program. We did a lot in a short period of time. Um, But I miss that. I definitely miss that. But it sounds like it it wasn't really available to do that with Mm -mm. everybody leaving and moving. No, it wasn't. It was like, do you want to be the director or not? We need you. (laughs) Yeah. And that question came to me the week before my first son was born. Yeah. Yes. Um, wow. Yeah. And the AD was like, you know, and to his credit, he's kind of right. He was like, I'd really like you to answer this question before you have your baby. Because after you <laughs> have your it. baby, yeah. you're going to feel all kinds of different emotions. <laughs> and you may not have the clarity on your career in those first sure. few weeks. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> um no regrets, but I do, I did wish that I had a little bit more time to kind of, you know, build as a, as a head coach. I feel like, you know, the conversation of like women having a seat at the table, it comes up a lot and not just in coaching, but in boardrooms and, you know, all over the spectrum of careers. Did you feel like you ever struggled in that way? I mean, with moving to director so fast because people were leaving, but before that in your career wanting to be a coach, did you feel like that? Yeah. I mean, jumping that quickly into that role, I definitely felt imposter syndrome for like the first two years, I would say. Um, It, 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 you very quickly become like, well, just because you're a good athlete doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. Mm -hmm. Right. And she was just moved into this position because she's a female, right? And um, she doesn't even have experience being a head coach. Like, how is she being a director? So, like, those are, like, little things that you either hear or you assume are being said. Um, You know, maybe that's my own insecurity. But there were a lot of things that I heard through the grapevine of, like, you know, ways people were recruiting against us and recruiting against our program at Georgetown. Um. By the time I finished there, I felt very comfortable and confident and very supported. Um, But it took a while. It really did. And just because you have a seat at the table doesn't mean you own the seat at the table. And I think owning it is a completely different place um, than just sitting there, right? You get that seat and you have to know what to do with it or you have to grow into it. And um, it was an incredible learning experience for me. Um, But it took a little while. It definitely took a little while. 
But that's the opportunity that presented itself in that moment. And there's not a single person that I know that would have turned down that opportunity. No. Um, especially for, you know, where they want to be in their coaching career. But I do, I do, like, I would say to any female coaches that have that opportunity that presents itself, like, know what it is that you want to. Um, I'm someone who always wants to have a seat. I'm, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I'm loud. Like I like to be, you know, in the conversation and, um, but everyone shouldn't like, should people really should try to take that step as they're ready to take it. Sometimes you really do have to take a leap of faith and say, I, I don't know, but someone has confidence that I can do it. I think I can do it. Or this isn't going to be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So we'll figure it out and be vulnerable to it. But if you don't feel ready for it or you're not set up in your life to be ready for it, like you don't have to take it just because it's there. And I think that at least in my experience, and I'm not going to speak on behalf of all women, but it felt like I need to do this. I need to do this. I need to do this. And then once I got there, it's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, And I've stepped away from coaching now because it was an overwhelming part of my life when I was trying to build a family. Mm -hmm. So this new career path is also a passion of mine. Um, But in some ways, coaching came at like a really challenging time in my life too, where I knew I wanted, you know, I got married when I was an assistant coach at Georgetown. And by the following year, you know, I was having a baby and I was taking over the program. Um, so I was balancing this family life at the same time that I was taking on this whole new career. Um, and so I think in some ways I stepped away from it because the timing just wasn't right for me anymore. Um, and I, we interviewed Vin Lanana on our, on our podcast a couple of months ago. And um, he was like, I asked him, why come back to coaching? Like of all the things you've done in your career, like you've made such a huge impact on the sport. Why come back to coaching? And he was like, because I love it. Mm -hmm. And it's what, it's where I started. It's, it was the true passion that got me into this space. And he said, I hate to break it to you, Julie, but your time as a coach is not over. Um, And it made me laugh because I'm like, yeah, you know, we go through seasons of our life. Like this is just not the season in my life to be coaching. It's to, continue to accelerate in my career, but alongside, you know, building and raising a family. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think that people will say it's, you know, for a woman with young children, that schedule, that demanding schedule is really hard. But I'm here to say, like, if my husband had a schedule like that right now with our kids being Mm -hmm. so little, I would go crazy. Like, I, (laughs) you know, like I wouldn't want my husband gone that much. So, I mean, I think it can be, obviously, as women, we're doing a little bit more of the physical lifting, especially if you're breastfeeding your Mm -hmm. babies. Um, But I think you can really think about any human being that is in the life cycle, the part of their life cycle where they have kids that are like, 10 and under or whatever that number is like that is a very demanding job as far as time goes right right yeah 100 percent. and I've talked to a couple of college coaches now that I'm on this side of it right so 
I wish I had talked to them when I was on the coaching side of it. But, you know, through my job now, I recruit athletes. And so I'm talking to a lot of college coaches throughout the year. And I, I talked to them about that time period. And the two female head coaches who've had great success that I talked to said until their child got into kindergarten, it was a real struggle, mm. right? Because once they're in school and they're kind of mature enough to kind of head into that space in their life, there is less of a burden and guilt on the parent, on the mother. And that for, for both of them, they said they held, you know, they knew that they weren't as great of a coach as they could be, or at least they put themselves in positions that weren't so high level and so high stress that once they kind of crested into that space, their kids are now in the public school system or, you know, they're in a rhythm, their family's in a rhythm, like the week is pretty consistent. That's when they were able to really start to take off in their own coaching career. So not to say that women can't do that. It's just a challenging few years. It is. And it's a challenge to your significant other um, who, you know, has to take them on the weekends. And if you have multiple children, you know, there's different activities happening. And I think for me, I'm like, I'm, I feel comfortable flying out to Seattle once a month or twice a month or whatever, because it's during the week when the kids are on a schedule. It was the weekends that really got hectic for our family where it was like, okay, (laughs) Saturday morning, dad's got, you know, this one here, this one here. Like there's just so much going on. and, And that's when it, it was wearing on us as a family. I mean, and let's be honest, once you get to three kids, <laughs> just don't help as much. No, no. Nobody they, wants I, all three. They, yeah, they can't. It's so chaotic. <laughs> like, I, I having all three for me, I'm like, please help somebody come hold a baby, like take a child, you know, it just gets crazy. Um, and you just start to embrace the madness. You're like, well... I tried to be a perfect mom at one child. It started to get compromised by two. Now I'm like, please just don't hurt yourself. I know. <laughs> I remember when I had my third, my biggest fear was that my second was going to like, just like kill him. Like by yeah. like throwing a really hard toy at his head or, you know, like pushing him down the stairs. I have all boys too. They're very physical in nature. They are. They are. It's so like... I just don't want them to hurt each other. Like when one goes down, I'm like, please don't let there be blood. Like in those first few weeks when the baby was born this summer, I've never seen my older two fight so much. I mean, it just was so crazy. Uh, Like, um, I I hope that my mind blacks out that time. Yeah. (laughs) The, the fighting is so hard and it's, you know, like my oldest is nine now and even, you know, the neighborhood boys come over and they'd all jump on the trampoline and they're just so physical. Right. And every day out of my mouth, it's like, somebody's going to get hurt. They enjoy playing like that though. And I can't wrap my head around it to me. I'm like, that is so annoying. You know, I wouldn't want anybody to touch me like that. Like, but that's, it's like, it is, it's how they were, how they were born. It's like, I know it's true. My second born, like, will just jump on top of my, my first and just start wrestling. I'm like, nah, that's not a natural emotion for me. Don't, don't have that feeling. Totally. And (laughs) obviously not all boys are like that. And some girls are like that. But in my experience, man, my boys are just rough. Um, 
I wanted to play what Josette said about you um, when I interviewed her. Yes, Julie always believed in me, and um, that was really big, too. I remember just in some of the meetings, she's like, I I know what goals you want, and I, I can tell that you're like, it's like I can hear it in your voice. Like your voice is like cracking, and sometimes I think I was just so, I felt so far away from the goals that I wanted to do that I couldn't even say it to her because I was like, I'm so far away from it. I can't even like tell you right now what I want to do. And I think she always saw that and like knew how emotional I would get because I thought I was running out of time to just even have the opportunity to even pursue a pro career. So um, I'm really grateful that it was her and that she kept believing in me and maybe gave me a little bit of tough love in that fifth year because we were on a time crunch, but she really was able to help me and get into that position of getting that pro contract in the postseason. I love that so much. Mm. Talk about Josette a little bit and, and your belief in her and, and the other athletes that you coach, how you have belief in them. Yeah, she's a special kid. Uh, it's been such a joy. She, I'm going to see her this weekend. I'm so excited. I haven't seen her since the trials. Um, but she was this athlete who was stuck in a rut. And it, you know, some of the injuries happened from training. Some of them happened from random things. Like she got bit by a dog and was compensating for a couple of weeks, which, you know, took her out of her spring season. I think that was her, maybe her senior year. Um, what always struck me about Josette was she, she felt very much like me in the sense that she was very emotional and very deeply connected to what she wanted to do. But she was also really tough. She is really tough. And she can handle um, she can handle hard conversations. Like, and you the emotions come out as they do with me. Like I needed people to be tough on me. I'd be crying as they were tough on me, but it was what I needed. And it took a few years for us to kind of build that relationship together. I mean, relationships don't happen overnight. And we especially it's such a formative time in a young person's life, a young woman's life. Um, it's delicate. And she came to Georgetown as I was taking over at Georgetown. She actually came and committed to run for Mike Smith. And that summer was so hard for her because she made this decision to leave UNC to come run for Georgetown, to come run for Mike Smith after her sophomore year And a few weeks after she committed, Mike took the job at NAU. And I remember she, her mom called me crying. Mm -hmm. Her high school coach called me like so upset. Um, But it was such a blessing because I think we needed each other. Mm -hmm. And it took a couple of years. It's easy to look back and say that worked out for the better. In the moment, we were like, I knew I could coach her, but she didn't know that. Right. And it took a few years of us having highs and lows and you know there were some tough moments but we knew how talented Josette was but for a few years there she just couldn't get in a rhythm and you know that's on me that's on you know us as a coach athlete relationship but I will never forget and she still gives me crap for it her it was uh probably October of her fifth year and um I don't even know what sparked the conversation, but it was like, Hey, where are you right now? We need to talk. And she was getting ready to go into, I think like a Spanish exam or something. 
And I met her outside of her building and we were talking about something and it, the fire just was lit in me to like light the fire in her. Ah. And we had a very one-sided me like lecturing her conversation, but it was like, Hey, the gist of it was what the hell are you doing? If you want this, like you have to let go of everything right now, everything all of the, you know, the pain and the frustration and the injuries and all the mounted pieces of why this can't happen for you. Like you got to get going and you got to figure it out. Like as an athlete, as a young person, it's really easy to like be bogged down by like the experiences and this trauma that's happened to us in the past, right? The trauma of not being able to, to make it work that we can literally manifest our, the rest of our experience because of the previous trauma, because of the assumption that it's going to continue to be bad. And I just kind of snapped at her. And I was like, you know, probably dropped a couple of words that I won't repeat here. But I was (laughs) like, Josette, like, this is on you now. Like, you have to make this decision. What do you want to do? And I like looked her in the eyes, like, what do you want to do? And like she was tears and I was emotional and would not a good place to put her in going into an exam. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for me, that was a pivotal moment. I don't know that it was for her, but not once she got healthy, she started to really go for it. And there were a couple of moments, I think, with her and, you know, some of the training she was doing a run she went on down in Charlottesville, actually, um, that winter that really she started to see it. She started to feel it. And she was letting go of, you know, the trauma. There's a lot of trauma that happens that, you know, trauma sounds like a really big word, but there are all these small pieces that hold us back in our life. And I think she let go of that. And then we were able to start to get in a rhythm. And that's when you saw the talent of Josette Norris start to come out. And every workout was like, she would crush it. And the next one, she would crush it. And the times didn't come right away. But I was like, Josette, just hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. And then by the time we got to the outdoor season, she's running and her confidence is bigger than anything it had ever been. It is very important, and I don't know that she always says this, but I think that Robbie played a really huge role in building her confidence. Like, he had been there, done that, he's seen it, he's an Olympian, he had a perspective that I think made such a big difference, having him be the cheerleader in her corner outside of her teammates and her family. He wanted to know how her four-mile easy run was. He wanted to know, like, all these little details that helped build this progression for her. Um, it was incredible to see it come together, she, but it's on her. Like I'm there to support her. I'm there to, you know, throw the smack down a little bit when it's necessary, but it was always in her. And it's just such a beautiful thing to see her do what she's doing right now. And like the joy, um, she's the most joyous athlete oh, yeah. that we've seen in a while. Yeah. Like. She loves this so much. She loves winning. She loves competing. She loves, she's so passionate about it. And to see and think back to the young person that was like, she's talking about in that conversation that's emotional and like so too scared to even say what she's dreaming of. 
and the nervousness and the emotion behind that to see it come to life. I'm like, the amount of times I've cried watching her is like, cause it's just beautiful and it's beautiful to see her joy. And like it, she is radiating with it. Um, I just, I want to see that continue for her. I feel that from her as, as someone watching her as well. Like she is so joyful. I, I've interviewed her, but I also got to meet her at the Sir Walter Mile. And I was like, oh my gosh, she is just as, she's just as I thought she would be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a front. It's not fake. That's just, she's a really happy person. Hey everybody, a quick break here to thank Beam for supporting this episode of the podcast. Beam has the highest quality functional supplements for better balance, energy, recovery, and sleep. And let me just tell you about this dream powder that I am loving. It is a bedtime blend of sleep-enhancing vitamins, minerals, nano hemp, and more. And when it's mixed with warm milk or hot water, it makes a guilt-free, sleep-inducing, delicious cup of cocoa. This is my nighttime routine. I love it so much. It relaxes me. It gives me something to look forward to. As soon as my kids go to bed, I'm sitting on the couch with my dream blend watching a terrible show. Like I just finished watching Virgin River. It's so good and so bad at the same time. And usually the Beam Dream Blend accompanies that. They also have an amazing hydration line. I have been loving, 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 loving the recovery hydration powder. It's formulated with non-GMO collagen peptides and BCAA for supportive joint and muscle health. If you are getting hot and sweaty on your run, you need to replace those electrolytes. And this is the most delicious, refreshing hydration product I have found. And I've been running for a lot of years. You guys can save 15% when you use the code ANOTHER. Just go to Beam, B-E-A-M, organics.com and use the code ANOTHER for 15% off your order. All right, back to the show. All right, so let's move on to like when you decided now is the time I'm ready to step away from this and do something new. So, um, so the spring of 2019, uh, that was the spring that Josette was starting to take off. And that winter, I came out of the indoor season. I guess we were almost halfway through the indoor season and I was starting to feel like there was something missing from my coaching career. Um, we had formed a female head coaches group at Georgetown and we met once a month and we just chatted about things that were happening in our different sports. Um, and really tried to have kind of a space for mentorship or just camaraderie among our female coaches. And one of our soccer coaches came in, and she shared with us a podcast and the podcast had on it um, a woman by the name of Carlette Patterson. And Carlette has an entire, basically academy of life coaching. She's a life coach and she teaches coaches of sports to become life coaches. This spoke to me in this incredible way. And I reached out to her And they had a class, a cohort that was starting like the following Tuesday. And it's really, it was really expensive to take on. I actually was able to get my athletic director to sponsor me and pay for it. And I embarked on this 
15 week kind of crash course in becoming a life coach. I felt like there was a connection that was missing for me in my coaching and just kind of a softness and a um, deeper understanding and, and way for me to kind of connect with my athletes. And so I started applying all these principles into my coaching in spring of 2019 and then through um, fall and, you know, beginning basically the end of indoor season. And it was awesome. It was creating an incredible connection with our young women in the program. Um, It was creating a stronger connection with me and the athletes. Um, We were really starting to be more vulnerable to each other, talking more about our goals, all these things. And it was really just this incredible shift, I think, um, for our program. And then really for me as the leader of the program, um, meeting Carlette. So I'm getting a little bit off track, but meeting Carlette really started to help me put in perspective what it was that I really wanted in coaching and kind of in life, you know, is in the personal and professional and really philanthropic sector. There's three, um, three main principles in sport life coaching, philanthropic, personal, and professional. And so as I'm becoming a life coach, Carlette is also becoming my life coach, right? And so she's working with me, um, you know, in just day-to-day things, kind of helping me organize what it is that, you know, I want for myself, for my family, for my, you know, professional career, et cetera. And simultaneously, I was in very slow motion, finishing my um, master's degree um, from Georgetown. So when I got, when I started in uh, 2014, I needed to wait a year, but after a year you could get tuition remission. So free tuition at Georgetown for a graduate program. So when I was an assistant coach, I was like, this is perfect, right? I can get a graduate degree, you know, alongside being an assistant coach. All these things happen in the next couple of years, right? Literally, I think they're about to kick me out of this program because I had been in it for so long. So five years it took me to get my master's degree uh, with multiple babies and time off here (laughs) and time off there. Um, But so coming into spring of 2020, I have Carlette in my corner. I have um, me finishing up my master's degree and this really perfect storm that happened with COVID. Right. So step away from coaching, come on back home. Really is the first time I was really home and really present with my family. And I'm walking through this as so many people were this massive shift in in life and in socialization and really putting things in perspective. And I just realized I wanted to be home. Um, That February, I had flown to the Atlanta Trials. Um, and was there with our business, our family business, my husband and I own running stores here in the Washington DC area. So Brooks had invited our podcast down to live interview, um, you know, the athletes who were going to be competing, um, some of the hometown heroes that Brooks had sponsored, as well as Jim Weber, some of our coaches, um, I say our, cause now I'm on that side yeah, and yeah. part of our Brooks family. Um, and Steve, uh, DeCoker, who was the, um, he was the sports marketing manager at the time was part of that event. He actually left a few weeks later to take over at on. So the folks that I kind of knew peripherally at Brooks and had spent time with down there reached out to me and said, Hey, this is an opportunity. 
um, that's kind of coming to the forefront. Um, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I mean, looking back in high school, college, like that's what I had studied marketing for. I wanted to be in sports marketing. Um, I went through the business school at Rutgers with the intention of hopefully someday working in sports marketing. Coaching kept calling me, calling me, calling me, and I was drawn towards that. But this was just kind of this incredible moment to pivot. Um, of course, my now manager, Matt Weiss, you know, I said, listen, this really is an incredible opportunity. It's, it's hard for me to even think outside of the coaching bubble, but my family, we're not moving to Seattle. Like we just mm. can't do that. Mm -hmm. And he kind of laughed and he was like, well, find me someone who will. And <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. So I spent some time with it and you know, the shutdowns happen. Everyone's working remotely. Everyone's starting to realize that like we're working differently. So we kept talking and, um, Ultimately, they started the interview process in June. Um, I interviewed through July and early August, and they offered it to me towards the end of August. Um, so big shift, big change. But, you know, when you look back at these moments, it's like you see how these different elements like start to line up, like the people that you meet, the people who influence you, the timing of things. And again, it was one of those like it just was the right decision for me and my family. And I, I think when... I operated earlier in my career when it was just me making a decision for just me. Uh, sometimes it was actually harder because, um, you know, you're, you're like, is this the right path to, to, you know, that I should be following when you start to make decisions for your, your family? Mm. Like it, I didn't even think twice about it. I was like, this offers me a new opportunity. It offers me more time with my boys. It offers me more time at home. I still have the opportunity to travel. It's a new space that I want to be involved in. It marries a lot of the things that I'm passionate about with youth and with coaches, with athletes, with uh, different programming. It, it kind of pulled all those things together um, with a brand that, you know, our family had has an incredible relationship with and um, incredible like feelings towards. So it's just a very caring brand and has always really been on um, on the side of the retailer taking care of mm -hmm. you know the people who are really on the ground within the running community so lots of long stories i'm giving you today but long story short it was great timing um you know and i i really feel strongly about this being the right time and place for me to be pursuing uh something different inside the sport i mean talk about someone who has an inside look at so many facets of the sport. You've been the professional athlete. You've been the coach, the director, mm -hmm. and your husband and, and you own all these specialty run stores. And if anybody's involved in the running community, they know how important those stores are to the communities. And now you're working for Brooks, like at one of the companies. <laughs> so it's like, what other like arm of, of the business could you ever involve yourself in? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's cool. I, I think of myself as having a lot of, uh, a lot of perspective. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm good at any of it, but I definitely <laughs> have a good perspective on things. What do you miss about coaching? Man, I'll tell you, last uh, spring, which sounds weird to say, but the cross-country season was last spring, mm -hmm. right? Um, I watched the women's team at Georgetown capture the Big East title. And it had been something that we had been – it had been on our goals list for years. Like, we were inching our way towards it year over year. And um, 
you know, you forget about the hard times, you forget about like the early mornings Mm -hmm. and the moments that are really challenging and the, you know, the days where we didn't perform as well or the workout didn't go as well. And you forget about like how hard that is on the coach of like self-reflection. Did I do something wrong? Like you start to look back and all you think about is like the good times. Right. And I look back and I miss those good times. Those like really, really high moments. Um, Coaching has, and being an athlete too, like the high moments are few and far between. Um, You kind of like grind for months for those like small moments in time that make it all worth it. Um, Watching the Big East Championships last year was like one of those moments. Like I was sobbing watching the Mm. girls race because it was just like there was so much planning and years of recruiting and you know, getting the athletes to believe in each other and believe in the program. And, you know, the new coach, Mitchell Baker, that's there now has done an amazing job and kind of continued the great work that we were doing. And obviously he brings his own wealth of experience and, and everything into it, but it was such a neat moment to see that. And I think that's what I miss is like the moments where it comes together and it's hard. Cause like it could be years before they come together. Yeah. It could be weeks and months to see breakthroughs. Um, but when you see it come together, like there's no greater feeling. That's what coaches get addicted to. That's what they work for years and years to build is to like help athletes execute that moment, help a team execute that moment. And, um, you know, they went on to, to race really well at, um, the NCAA meet and there was an individual champion at big East and an all American at, you know, and it, it just was so neat because they're like, they're still your kids, you know, like no matter what, like, you know, distance in between and past going in different ways. It's like they're still your kids, you know, and you still love them and believe in them from afar. Um, and that was a really powerful moment. I was like, I literally that was the first time that I was really like, I don't know if I made the right decision. Mm. This is really hard. <laughs> oh yeah, because I it was really emotional, but I was just so proud, proud of them and proud for them. I'm so curious about this life coaching thing, Carlette. What what are some examples of things that she helped you change as far as your coaching style went? So um, life coaching is really interesting. It's a cool perspective. Um, what life coaches do is they really just ask and guide an individual to find the answers for themselves right? Or question um, things that maybe aren't going great for them or help them through their own period of reflection. So what a life coach never does is offer suggestions. Mm, Or, or here's what I would do in your if I was in your shoes, like that's like the cardinal sin of life coaching. Okay. So it's like, whereas maybe a therapist or somebody that's a licensed professional in the medical space might have a different angle. Life coaching is really just listening. We call it level three listening, um, where you are at a whole other level of listening, hearing, interpreting, and helping the person kind of walk through what they are offering to you in that moment. Um, So I think in a nutshell, like taking that mindset and bringing it into coaching, really listening. And that's where I kind of talked about before where like, my perspective and my experience can really color a conversation if I allow it to. 
But if I listen on a different level to what the athlete's walking through in that moment, I can help them walk another step into it, right? Or help them uh, guide the next step um, that they that they choose for themselves, right? Um, a lot of it is about allowing them to hear each other as well. So just for an example, something that we would do um, a couple mornings a week is something called call your life play. And when you say call your life play, everyone puts up one through five, how they're feeling in that moment. One being the worst, five being the best. And without saying anything, everyone looks around the room to see who's at, who's having a tough moment or who's having a good day, right? That's the type of thing without saying a single thing. If you look next to the person, you look at the person next to you and you see they're a two, you don't even need to know why they're a two. They don't need to explain themselves. They don't need to say anything. But you can look at that person and say, I got you today, right? Like I might have said, this individual is going to lead the workout today. I see they're a two. Uh-huh. They're not leading. They're not leading the workout today, mm-hmm. right? And so we don't ask them to justify themselves. They can decide if they want to share with with anybody. Um, but we can have their back for the for the day, or if it's a couple days, right? And so when that kind of changes, and that person's a five, and somebody else is a one because they've slept four hours because they had a really tough exam before they showed up for practice that day we can make those types of shifts. So it's seeing each other without having to place judgment, without having to ask questions. It's not important to know why, it's just important to know how they're showing up. And if we need to show up more for someone else on that day, it builds this level of trust between them that's kind of unspoken. It's really powerful. And it's just the simplest thing, one through five, hands up, you don't have to explain yourself, you you just, acknowledge how you're showing up that day. Wow, that is so cool. That's something that could be utilized in like classrooms, work environments. I love that. Totally, totally. Oh my goodness, Julie, we could talk for hours (laughs) about running and business and motherhood and all the things. I know. I can't believe you have four boys. That's mind blowing to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you're just one behind me here. You're two, you're two, two. Yours are close too. Are you, are yours like baby two and four? We're five, three and baby. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So everybody's yeah. two years apart. Yeah. Yeah. My, much. my, that's how my last three are a little under two years apart. They're like 21, 22 months. And then my, my older one is two and a half years older than the next one. And, um, yeah, man, it's like until your youngest <laughs> is like two or three, you're just in it. It's hard. <laughs> I know. People look at us and they're just like, yeah, these are the hardest years. They uh, are. When they're really when they're really little. The five year old is at least at a point where he can rationalize. Yeah. You know, the the three year old just reacts and the eight week old is just trying not to get thrown down the stairs. Yeah. yeah but much. needs everything <laughs> done for them. Yeah. I mean, and I say that like I know. Their parents of older kids listening, thinking, no, you just wait. The teenage years are hard. You know, everything's more complicated then. But I do think just like in a physical uh, way, there's just an exhaustion that nothing will ever compare to what it is when you have newborns and toddlers. Yeah. And you're figuring it out. Yeah. Like you're, you're still on some level a new mother 
Um, especially when you have a new child, you keep becoming a new mother because yeah. the dynamic keeps shifting. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting time. You, I think the one thing I've learned in the last couple of weeks is just like every day being a mom is different. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was willing to admit that before, but it's like every morning you hit the restart button because every day presents presents a new challenge. Um, or you have to rethink the way you were doing something because it's not working anymore. Yes. Or or the discipline has to change or the goal for the day or the week or whatever that has to change. Um, it, it is a constant like revolving door. <laughs> it's like you just got to keep walking through it. Yeah. And especially with multiple kids, cause you like something might have worked for one of your kids that doesn't work for another one of your kids, whether it be like you said, discipline or school, something at school or a certain teacher or whatever it is like, they're just all so different. So it's like you, there's no one script for every kid. Agreed. Agreed. Oh, man. Okay, Julie. Well, what is something professionally or personally that you would like to do that you haven't done yet? I was thinking about this. I just turned 40 like a couple of weeks ago. And he spent a lot of time kind of reflecting on the last 10 years and what the next 10 years will look like. Um. I think, and this has helped me with, this has helped coming from my life coach, Carlette, as well. But, um, you know, I think I came into a session with her one time and and there was a couple other people there. And she said, you know, I I want everyone thinking, like, what is it that you want next in your professional career? What is it that you want to accomplish in the next, you know, few years or whatever? And I think the only thing I could come up with in that moment was I want to be really good at what I'm doing right now. Mm. I don't, I don't know what the next step is. And that's a scary thing. I think that I've always been like, this is my running career, my coaching career. Okay. Now I'm switching careers. Like I don't see this like definitive path right now. I just want to be really good at what I'm doing right now and see where that leads me next. Uh, instead of kind of planning for the next step or or trying to position myself for the next step, I want to get good and be really good at what I do. And I think that will open a door for me. Um, that's a different attitude and mindset than I've had in the past, but being focused on what it is I'm doing right now and how good I can be at what I'm doing right now keeps me from trying to move on to the next step too quickly. I mean, I think I talked about kind of moving through steps a little bit quickly before I want to be a little bit more present right now. Yeah, that's a really good point because it's like, if you're constantly thinking about what's going to be next, you're not really enjoying and embracing what you're actually doing right now. Yeah, And perfecting absolutely. that. Oh gosh, that's really good. Um, I know I've tried to like in the past couple of years, I, I get this question sometimes when I'm interviewed, like, what's your next big goal with the podcast and your yeah. network and everything? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm good. Like, I think I'm like, yeah. I enjoy interviewing people and I have a really good, like balance with the amount of hours I work with also being able to take my kids to practice and doing all the things that they do. And it's like, maybe I don't need to keep dreaming bigger right now. I just need to like stay right here and that's okay it is and it's scary because you feel like maybe I should have something else I'm working on or maybe I should have goals but it's like 
it will hit you when it hits you that you'll be like, you know what, this isn't doing it the same way. It's not doing it for me the same way that it was before. There might be something more I want to do. There might be a shift that I want to see happen. And that's when you start to reposition your thinking. But if you pressure yourself into like, what's the next step? You're not, like you said, present in what you're doing in this moment. Yeah, and you can't look at what other people are doing and think, well, they're doing all these other things. Well, maybe they don't have four kids or maybe, you know, (laughs) like, I don't know. They're just life circumstances are different or they're going through a season where they feel very driven. That's okay if you don't feel very driven to do extra or more right now. Maybe I just needed that pep talk. (laughs) (laughs) We all need pep talks. We all do. (laughs) Um, Do you read? What's the best, most recent book you've read? I am doing more audiobooks these days than finding time to sit down. The amount of books I've ordered from Amazon that just go on my shelf. They just keep coming in. I know. <laughs> I'm like so inspired. And then I'm like, I actually just physically bought it and bought it on audiobooks. So <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense. Um, I am listening to Extreme Ownership mm. uh, by Jocko Willink right now. And um, I am just a couple chapters into it but it is fascinating and uh incredible learnings that can be um you know used in your personal life your professional life with your kids owning your space owning the moment you know being a leader for your home for your profession for wherever that is um stories they're you know they're they're stories of battle um and in just really intense moments in uh, Navy SEAL history and Jocko does an incredible job of kind of pulling that into your day-to-day life like what it is that you own um, and how like owning your own space and not making excuses for mm. whatever small thing or big thing it, it is in your life will really kind of uh, move you forward so uh, it's I'm, I'm really early in I'd say I'm like probably chapter three or so but um, it's a uh, it's been a really interesting one. And I even just think about it as being a mom. Like yeah. what I'm owning and not owning, what I'm blaming my husband for or saying I'm too tired, you know, or or saying, you know, this is just a really tough time in life and, and kind of letting things slide. Um, it's been really helpful for me at this stage, kind of taking a look and saying, what is it that I'm letting slide? Mm-hmm. And what, what can I be doing that will better improve, you know, the day to day for my family? Yeah, you know, it's like, I think that we're in this, like, there's this, like, hot mess mom culture that's, like, (laughs) celebrated, you know, and it's, like, fine to be a hot mess sometimes and to have hot mess days, but guess what? Like, it's also fine to want to have it together. Like, that's also a good goal to have, and it doesn't mean you're going to have that every day, Uh, but I think there's been this, like, this wave of, like, you know, like, of course you're a hot mess. Just just get through the day. And it's like, I don't want to just get through the day. I want to no. have a good day. Yeah, yeah. Get through the day, have a glass of wine, call it a day. And I'm like, yeah, I had this conversation with my husband this past weekend. It's like our kids, I feel like, are sliding too much over this way in terms of their amount of screen time that they have. Yeah, and yeah. Not, none of the moms want, no one wants to admit how much their kids are in front of the screens, right? For sure. Because we don't want to judge each other. We don't want to feel bad about it because we already feel bad about it, right? Right. And it was like Saturday night and I just like had this monologue lecture to my husband and I'm like, this is all about our discipline as parents. It is our decision 
we are in charge. We like, we want better for our kids. If it's rotting their brain, we cannot keep saying to ourselves, it's just a hard time in life. Right. It's a hard day. It's this, it's that. Well, I just don't, you know, what I can't get them in the car unless I promise them an iPhone. Like, no, we are done. And like, we cut the cord. We scheduled a certain amount of time each day. I mean, we're literally on day three, but I'm like, we are in charge and I don't want to keep saying it's just a hard time. Just get through it because this is their life. And it's a lot of years that are going to be hard. (laughs) So like that can't be just like always the excuse. And I mean, COVID was extenuating circumstances, but like, okay, now what can we do? Yeah, exactly. I'll still have my glass of wine at five o'clock, but... But we're going to be disciplined around that. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. And I and I, what I've been learning, because I, I have a parenting podcast too. It's called Why Is Everyone Yelling? But what I, I what, love it. Have you ever said <laughs> that? Um, but just like kids just need expectations and yeah. and got, like they need a guide for those things. So if they know what to expect, not saying it still won't be hard. I just have to put the work in to set those expectations. And then they just know. And it's, but that's the thing is it's, that's work for us. And that's hard. It is. It is. But it is also fascinating at how quickly they adapt. Adults can't adapt that fast. No, we just can't. We can't make change like they do. It's like uh, yesterday was the first day of this kind of new schedule that I built for them. And, you know, they've got some tasks. They're five and three. So it's hard. You got to reward them with candy or cake at the end of the week. But it's like you build this thing out and it's like as long as you keep like telling them what's coming, showing them what the expectations are, the time on the clock that they're allowed to, whatever that is, like they adjust so fast. I'm thankful for that. I can't adjust that quickly. You know, it's hard enough for the parents to just hold them accountable, but they'll do it. They'll fight and cry. But yeah. once they get into that rhythm, they don't even ask about it anymore. It's actually like comforting to them, even though they don't realize it, knowing that they have that like boundary. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, I, well, I just promised we're, my three-year-old, that's my youngest. He turned three in August. We cannot potty train him for the life of me. I don't even remember how Aww. I did it with my other three. Like, I'm like, how did I do this? Because it was not this hard. Um, but he, I just promised him uh, I said, I'll make you a cake, a potty cake with a toilet on it. If you, if you use the bathroom, I mean, this is literally after he pooped his underwear twice yesterday. Like he's peeing his pants at school. Like it is out of control. So anyway, yeah, I'm not above the, I'm going to make a cake for you or you're going to get M&Ms or whatever it is. If you use the bathroom. No, it's called bribery. And yeah. It's, ba- it's basically the best tool we have. So. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Okay. Um, and by the way, Extreme Ownership, um, I think it was Jordan Hesse who also recommended that book. And so I have it, but I have not read it. Um, so do an audio. I'm okay. telling you. Audio it's, it's is his voice. a lifesaver. It is. He reads it. Okay. And um, the other gentleman that is uh, that contributed to the book as well, they both read it. So it's cool. I, I do really appreciate when authors read it themselves. I do too. It's a lot more passion behind it. I totally agree with that. Um, okay. Who's someone fun, motivating, or inspiring you would like to have coffee, tea, or cocktail with? Oh, uh, this never, I never have this one. This is not this question. I never know. I feel like people always have idols or things. I've never really had them. 
I mean, I always say Oprah, and I feel like that's such a boring answer because everybody says <laughs> Oprah. So I never have right. a good answer either. I would like to have coffee with Oprah. I do very much like her. Yeah. I like Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres. I think she'd be a lot of fun. I think, you know, I think I'm going to go. Um, I've just been listening to Armchair Expert quite a bit with Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell and Monica <laughs> Padman. I think I want to go hang out with the, the three of them. That's going to be my that- answer. Yeah, make Kristen Bell sing to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, it. what is your last message to leave with our audience today? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think curiosity is the thing that really has helped me over the last few years and not being afraid to try something new. Um, it sounds so cliche. You know, it's it's hard for, you know, for an answer, an all-encompassing answer maybe to not sound cliche, but... Um, I think curiosity has helped me a lot. Um, being curious about trying something new or, um, you know, leaning into a different career path, leaning into a different mindset, um, being open to a different way of approaching things. Um, that's been a lifesaver for me and not, and, and just not being afraid to fail. I think curiosity brings you to a point, but then you also have to have the ability to kind of take, take a leap like people say it, it's like you're going to fail, you know, 98 times and succeed two times, right? But it's those two times that you succeed that really shape the way that you move through this this world. Um, a spirit of curiosity has really kept me, kept me moving in some direction, right? Like you you don't wake up in the morning thinking to yourself, today I'm going to move in this way. It's really just like, oh, that's interesting. I think I want to try that. Um Cresting into my 40s, like I start to think about some of the things that I want to be curious about in the next couple of years. Like, I don't know, I've always wanted to be a better cook. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take a, you know, a two hour cooking class, right? Like, see if that's something that interests me and I want to pursue. Um, it's the same way I try to approach it with the kids, too. It's like, I want them to try a lot of things. And that can look like over scheduling. Um, but I'm also like, I just want you to see if you like it. If you like it, we'll keep doing it. If you don't like it, we won't keep doing it. Um, I want them to have that similar spirit of like, it's going to lead you down these different paths and we'll have to make decisions along the way, you know, that are best for the individual, best for the family. Um, but being curious, like, you know, for them, it's like checking to see what's under that little rock. Um, you know, trying something new, going to a different place, like putting them in a position to be vulnerable. Um, I try to have that same similar spirit. I love that. You know, I struggle with that so much with my kids because I too want them to try a lot of things, but I'm also like super like kind of anal about not over scheduling. So it's really hard to do all the things and not be zipping around from place to place all the time with, especially when you have a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think what the pandemic has done, I was talking to my mom about this yesterday is like, at at least where we live, like kids are playing socially outside, right. But we're not doing play dates. We're not necessarily going over to each other's houses quite yet. I think, you know, we're probably after the winter, we're going to see more of that kind of natural interaction. And Mm -hmm. so it feels like if I can't have them do that right now, 
you know, like they're just going to beat each other up. Oh my right? gosh. Yeah. Cause it's just the two of them. So scheduling them has at least gotten them out of the house and doing different things. It's exhausting as a parent, but what we're not able to do the same way as we were able to do before is like, just go down the street and see who's coming out to play today, yeah. go over to so-and-so's house for a little bit and kind of have that um, unstructured play. Um, that isn't as natural as it's been in the past. It isn't, especially if it's families that you don't know real well yet. Right, right, right. So I think we'll get back to that. Uh, I know we'll get back to that, but I think we're still in this kind of transitional time where it's like, are those people being as careful? Is that cold COVID? Like, you know, and especially with a a newborn, I'm like, don't sneeze, don't touch the baby. I know. (laughs) I can't imagine having a newborn during all of this. Yeah, it's just, it's another, it's another thing to kind of manage, but it's all good. Well, just wait until your big kids are out just running around. I mean, you're, you're still <laughs> in it. Like my two older are six and nine and like, they just go out and ride their bikes around and figure out things to do, fit, run around the neighborhood and just like, I mean, there's a little bit of free ranginess to that. That's kind of how I, um, I parent, but like, it is right. just... It is a godsend because you're not solely relying on just the brothers to play with each other. They're running around riding bikes with the kids in the neighborhood. And it's like built in like free freedom, freedom, like in free time, you know. And um, yeah, it's that's like that is the most fun. And I was just telling my husband and then we'll go. I know everybody's like, what are you doing? Um, We were talking about this redesign that we're we might be redesigning a couple of rooms in the house and I was like remember this space up here I want this space to be the place that when our boys are a little bit older they want to hang out with their friends here like yeah. <laughs> you want to be the house that kids want to be at because right. you you give them freedom but you also have strong boundaries and so like I'm like we're not gonna do anything that's gonna make it so that they don't want to like hang out with their buddies here because I want to be that safe right. place you know Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I know we could talk forever on this. And I'm excited for, I know our, my, the ages of my boys, like when we kind of finally crest the other side of this pandemic, like I grew up with my mom locking us outside, Yes, you know, it was just like, find the children, you know, you don't have, I'm not even going to give you anything. There's a bike, there's a ball, you know, go use your mind and your imagination. And I think we've, robbed our kids a little bit of that through the pandemic we've almost had to yeah i've talked to other parents about like you know overcompensating with buying too many toys because they were so bored yeah right because they weren't able to see their friends so there's a strong shift that we have to make as parents i think as we kind of come to the other side and and different states are a little bit you know some some areas are a little bit tighter than others in terms of you know the freedom that parents are allowing their children to have during this time period. But I look forward to that so much of just like, I want them out the door. Just play. Please just play. Oh yeah. I'm like, if you're outside, I don't care. Just go run around. I think outside to me feels really safe. And I mean, just yesterday I pulled into the house um, from taking my little boys to swimming lessons and the big ones are like, they're doing some obstacle course in the middle of the road (laughs) with like five neighbor kids. And I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like that is what it should be. And they're just being creative and using the, the things that we have in our garage to do some random obstacle course. I mean, that's what childhood should look like. Absolutely. I love it. 
I love it. All right, Julie. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You too. Bye, Julie. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Julie, for sharing your story. And I feel like we're new friends now. That was so much fun. Thank you to all of our sponsors for this episode, Beam, Koala Clip, and Gooder. We put together show notes for every single podcast episode, and you will get links to the discount codes as well as links to books we talked about when you subscribe to our newsletter. You can email Emma at sandyboyproductions.com to get added to the newsletter. It's such an easy way to just gather all the information quick. Emma also puts timestamps on the conversation. So if there's something you want to specifically just go back to and listen to, you can find that in the show notes, lindsayhine.com under the podcast tab. But I suggest joining our newsletter so you can just get that delivered to your inbox one time a week. All right, friends, you can find Julie on Instagram. She is J-E Coley, C-U-L-L-E-Y, 2012. You can find me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626. You can find me on Twitter, at lindsayhine. You can find Sandy Boy Productions on Instagram, Sandy Boy Productions. I also host a parenting podcast called Why Is Everyone Yelling? If you are a parent, you've probably said that many, many times, like I have. Um, Episodes on that show release every Tuesday. So I'd love to have you check out that show as well. Thanks for being here. Have a great Friday, a wonderful rest of your weekend. And as always, we'll see you next Friday.